0: Take a network break. Enjoy a fall selection of virtual donuts and join us for our weekly feast of tech news worth chewing on. We've got stories on Juniper, Akamai, Zoom, and more. We're sponsored this week by Palo Alto Networks. To find out what's next in SASE or the Secure Access Services Edge, sign up to watch the Palo Alto Networks SASE Converge 2021. This was a live event. It's now an on-demand webinar. You can hear from leading voices in networking and security, get details on the impact of SASE technology and more. You can sign up for that at saseconverge.paloaltonetworks. Com. And stay tuned after the news. We've got a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with HPE Aruba. We talk about a real-world SD-WAN deployment with a global manufacturer. And hey, if you like the network break, we have a bunch of other podcasts, including Day 2 Cloud, Heavy Networking, IPv6 Buzz, and Full Stack Journey. It's nerdy tech analysis and compelling conversation about infrastructure, cloud, professional development, and more. It's all at packetpushers.net. All right, let's jump into some news. Juniper has announced a new chassis switch for the data center. It's the QFX 5700. It's a 5RU chassis. You can mix and match line cards and interfaces from 10 gig, 25 gig, 40 gig, 50 gig, 100, 200, and 400 gig. And it can deliver a total bandwidth of 25.6 terabits per second. It's a big chassis.
1: Yeah, I always love a bit, love me a bit of hardware, as everybody <laughs> knows, I'm sure by now. Yeah. All uh, right, you know, like uh, like a bit of, you know, something you can you can hug, S- speeds you know? and feeds, you can smack it. It's heavy, yeah. That's right, and and it's a hard number. It's not like software, which is it's whatever you want it to be, <laughs> right. Greg. You know, what do you want it to be? We can make it whatever you want. You know, hardware is kind of it's got this sense of permanence about it. So I'm always uh, pleased to see when people that announce it now. You know, Drew, that I am not overly pro chassis. That's not to say that chassis have no place in the industry. I just think that for the majority of customers, the majority of enterprises, the idea that you need to have, you know, 100, 200, 100 gig ports in a switch is kind of like incredibly optimistic.
0: Yeah, and that, I mean, frankly, I was surprised to hear that Juniper was launching a chassis for the data center, uh, given that, you know, sort of all of the conversation these days is about the leaf spine model using fixed form devices that, you know, with disaggregation, you're supposed to be able to swap in and out uh, to scale up as you need, as opposed to sinking all your money into a, a chassis. And yes, you can swap line cards in and out, but you're kind of bought into that form factor and that operating system uh, if
1: you're running a yeah, data center. Yeah, well, chassis are a form of lock-in. Um, right, in in the sense that once you buy that chassis, you ne- you only get ROI if you manage to get that chassis filled to a certain level. Particularly, you know, you want it to be hundred percent used. Um, you don't really get ROI if you buy it and put one card in it and say, "I'm going to put more cards in it tomorrow." Someday that <laughs> you know, like that's right. how we used to work back in the days when changing things was hard. But part of the idea behind Leaf Spine and use of one hour use is that you could unplug something and not take down the entire network, whereas the chassis-based switches create these single points of failure, if you like. Mm -hmm. And so they address that by having multiple single points of failure inside of the box. They have two Ricards, they have multiple black planes and all that, and then that complexity turns up into something else. And so I've always been a bit, I always felt like spine leaf was where it was at because it took away some of those fundamental limitations. But then again... When you get to a hundred gig, four hundred gig, and you need to have a wide variety of interfaces, and you know the twenty-five point six terabits per second obviously points to a particular chipset. In this case, the Broacom Trident Four, which is the latest evolution, came out about two years ago. I want to say, is it two years since the Trident Four was announced? I, I don't know. No, feels like not you know a long time, more than a year, less than two. And um, so yeah, I, I yeah you know, okay. So the big thing here, I, I did get to talk to Juniper about it, uh, and
0: they said, "Yeah, of course, um, you know the common design for leaf spine is the fixed form, but they do have customers, including you know SaaS providers, who are using mm. chassis in their leaf spine design as say a, a big leaf or a super spine because they need either the throughput of four hundred gig or they need a lot of port density. So it's a form factor that
1: can work for some customers even in this leaf spine architecture. And for those customers who want that. Great, uh, you know. So if you've got a need for you know, two hundred, four hundred gig ports in a single chassis, like as a spine layer, in your, or whatever, okay, you know, because what's actually inside the chassis is a, is a leaf spine in its own right. Right. Each of the cards in a in a chassis is a leaf, and somewhere in the back there'll be a spine that puts it all together. And then there's some extra stuff added on to try and make it flexible enough to make it viable to sell it in a fixed form in a in a flexible form factor. Um, that's why chassis are always so premium priced. And so if you need that, then yeah, you need that. But, um, and for those customers, it'll be great because it'll have redundant power supplies, redundant management modules. You'll have different line cards and you'll be able to rack it and then not have to. And if you work in an environment where getting allocation of rack space is particularly painful, you might have to go, it takes six months to be given space and power allocation. Well then a rack mm-hmm. which makes sense, but that's, Not You're not buying it for the right reasons, but you're buying it for a solution, I guess.
0: Yeah, I mean, Juniper's confident that they're going to be able to sell this. Uh, Other features, you mentioned the uh, Trident 4 uh, Broadcom ASIC. They also say the switch supports inline MacSec encryption uh, and can help uh, get you better power performance, power efficiency.
1: Well, uh, power efficiency, that comes back to the discussion we had last week. Power efficiency is when you put in a bigger, fatter switch, you might possibly be able to knock out 6, seven, eight, 10, 12 switches that exist in your network today. Right. So in effect, you replace 12 1RU boxes with one chassis. And so instead of having an, a a a blown up or a standalone uh, leaf spine, you just collapse it into a chassis and you might get some power efficiencies. I think any power efficiencies you get, you might waste as you upgrade to 400 gig. 400 gig uses a lot of power. It's a thing. Yeah, but uh, I think it's great. On the other hand, for customers who want that and need that, they'll be very pleased to have it. And if you're building an Abstra network and you need the diameter sideways, so Juniper Abstra, of course, and that idea of a, an SDN network, this fits into that model. Um, Juniper did say that this is the, the, an Abstra ready product.
0: That's right. If you uh, buy into the Abstra intent-based management software platform, which is also now owned by Juniper, you can include the switch uh, in your Abstra managed network.
1: Yeah, I'll get you a very wide. If you're building that into the spine, you're going to have a lot of leaves, right? So yes. you yes. can have, you know, two, maybe as many as four of these in your spine layer. And you could have, I'd be guessing something in the order of 50, 40 to 60 leaf switches fairly easily. I'll give you a lot of ports to connect your servers up to if that's what you're into. Absolutely. Mm. Uh,
0: Juniper plans to have the switch available in Q4. I asked about supply chain issues. They say they don't anticipate any
1: unusual headwinds due to supply chain problems. mm. I want to give some props to the blog post, which announces this product. It doesn't bloviate. Did you notice? I did. Yes.
0: Uh, It was written by Mike Bouchong, who we know and have talked to, uh, and Mm. he is not a bloviator. So yeah, tip of the hat for that. Yes.
1: This is not the, uh, I was reading something earlier today and it's saying, claims that they are the most trusted at something. And I'm going, (laughs) who said that? You? Hardly credible. (laughs) My mom (laughs) says I'm the most trustworthy. (laughs) I'm the most trustworthy. Who? Me? I didn't I didn't issue you with a badge saying you could say that just you know the greatest yes. company in the world today announced a new ethernet chassis. well what you know yeah nice and simple contains all the information i like it
0: yeah so we'll have a link to that if you want to go read it for yourself all right, moving on. Uh, CDN provider Akamai is spending $600 million to acquire Israeli security company GuardiCore. GuardiCore's flagship product is called GuardiCore Centra. It uses agent-based sensors and network data collectors to map application dependencies so that you can create micro-segmentation policies to limit which apps and services can communicate. There's also agents that they run on Windows and Linux boxes to kill processes or network communications that violate that policies. Uh, so Akamai, they you know they have a security portfolio of things like Web App Firewall, DNS Firewall, a secure web gateway to me, it seems like this guarded core solution now sort of puts them inside the customer data center or customer network, as opposed to just the perimeter.
1: You know, every time somebody talks about ransomware in the pitch, the first thing I'm thinking of is, no one expects the ransomware. Our chief weapon is so fun. Fire, uncertainty, and doubt. You know, yeah. very much a Monty Python kind of a goggle. And that just instantly loses credibility with me. Yes, ransomware is absolutely a problem. And, you know, making statements like ransomware isn't going away. Well, No. <laughs> that's like saying COVID isn't going away. No, obviously not. It's going to continue for some time. Gardacore has been around for a very long period of time. They previously had a bunch of products that were basically a firewall product. It was specifically niche. It looks like they have been forking the product in different directions. And they finally come up with the ransomware angle. Uh, And we see that a lot where security companies have pretty quickly glommed on to whatever it was they used to have before which is usually a VPN concentrator of some sort in uh-huh. or a security tool they pretty quickly glommed onto micro segmentation and with a little bit of uh gl- you know a little bit of glitter on their product all of a sudden you can start to say oh we're a zero trust prevent lateral movement asset management type company
0: yeah and Akamai is definitely banging on the ransomware uh a uh, tag as because it is the new magic word to open those enterprise coffers.
1: Yeah, well nobody wants to uh, nobody wants to ha- be taken to the ransomware because they're all afraid of it. Probably I as I've said before the best thing that you can do with ransomware is to be ransomware and you can actually get free media coverage if you're smart. You should actually want uh, and in an extreme case you actually want to pay somebody to ransomware you so you could actually get something done. But, you know, I'm only half joking when I say that. That said, I think the interesting thing about this is that focus on zero trust again. We're going to see Mm -hmm. another, uh, an article that we talk about later on in the show, that zero trust is coming back. This idea that when I connect to the network, my connection to the network is authenticated, authorized, and then carried in an overlay of some sort, IPsec, TLS, uh, VPN over the top. And then everything that leaves that VPN tunnel is then scanned, logged uh, and a, and policy, right? So it has to match some policy. If you say you want to access this part of the network and your policy doesn't let you, you can't even leave the VPN to get there. That's not new. That's been around for 30 years. What's making this possible is a software-defined controller which allows the policies to be much more granular than before. Right. So not much innovation, but what we are seeing is a lot of quite good execution, I think, and maybe GuardiCore is one of those.
0: Yeah, Uh Looking at Guardicore, uh to prep for the show, it reminds me, uh, I think they take a similar approach, uh, like with VMware's NSXT and Illumio, mm. um, where they're putting software into the data center and uh, using that as both uh, a way to map the network, look at application dependencies, figure out what's talking to what, and is that allowed? And then that software can also function as the uh, security checkpoint to say, wait, we can't allow this transaction to go through because it violates policy. Yeah. Uh, there's other ways to do zero trust, but um, I think you know we've seen NSXT and Illumio also push this approach.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, the idea of a VPN with an access list on it has been around right the way back with IPSec. We used to have IPSec clients connecting to the network and then they'd have an L3 or an L4 access list applied at the edge. That's fundamentally the same thing. All that's different now is that we're able to actually filter on applications and we don't filter at the edge, we actually filter in the core. So when it goes into some central point... And then what they've then done is added to the old idea of threat scanning. So they're scanning all the content, looking for stuff, they're logging it, they're doing it in the cloud, et cetera, et cetera, cetera, and moving on from there. Yeah.
0: Mm. Uh, Akamai for me is not like one of the first names that comes to mind if I'm building a mental shortlist around data center security or zero trust. So I think they've, I mean, it's an interesting, I think, adjacent space for them to get into, but I also think they've got some work to sort of position themselves as somebody that you'll come to for this.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Akamai, we've got to remember, we've seen a lot of CDN companies. I, I still think of Akamai as a CDN company and they're much more than that now. But at the end of the day, they have a distributed environment. They have a, a set of infrastructure that's distributed around the world at the edge of the network, directly antithetically opposed to cloud companies, of course, which are very mainframe in, in as a mental model, centralised in a small number of very large data centres. Companies like Akamai and Cloudflare and others, are, all have these distributed hosting environments where they do everything at the edge of the network. And so their ability to add technology to that infrastructure with software is defined by that distributed nature. And so just slapping some zero trust on the back of that makes perfect sense because all you have to do is add another app to the systems at the edge of your network.
0: All right, link in the show notes if you want to find out more. Uh, we'll move on. Ericsson's North America CEO says 5G could have a transformative impact on online gaming. The general idea is that game processing could happen remotely and then be streamed over 5G to a thin client in the player's home.
1: Ha ha. <laughs> That's like, does that, does that not just make you want to cringe, Drew? Is it is it just me?
0: I I mean, look, it's Ericsson, they want to sell as much 5G equipment as they can, so they're going to come up with every conceivable use case.
1: Yeah, this feels like uh, wishful thinking. This feels like a CEO saying something that shareholders want to hear, right? Not something that will actually happen. Um, 5G does improve mobile networking in theory. In theory, it provides more bandwidth to the handset, and there's a possibility that it could... But what we know is that Google Stadia, remember Google Stadia from just, what, 18 months ago? Right. This was their Um, like streaming gaming service, right? Yeah, exactly the same thing. Thin gaming, the idea is is back in the data center, do all the gaming stuff and then just send the screen data out to the edge. And of course, what they discovered is that nobody wants it. Nobody's got a good enough network. And most people don't have a network capable of handling it. And uh, the other thing that strikes me about this is that you've got to remember, too, that companies like Apple are competing to make the fat client better than a thin client. So you know that Apple's talking about, we can do privacy in the handset at the edge of the network. We don't have to send it into the cloud to do the processing, send it out to the edge and we'll make all of the privacy decisions. Your photos are private, they're encrypted at the edge. Or And so that if, if 5G is going to support this sort of low latency, high speed, and presumably high priced bandwidth principle, at the same time, you've got one of the biggest companies in the world going exactly the other way. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So, and the second part is that you have gaming companies who have 30 years of development experience and expertise and brands. Are they going to change their whole design model for gaming and the whole substrate on which they develop to go from fat client games, like you download the app and then it streams a small amount of data up to a central server. So the gameplay is that, you know, you're moving from here to here where we send a thing off to the server. Mm -hmm. Um, Does that... And I mean, there's just so much stacked against this as being real that I just think it's hard to accept. So I, as I wrote here, this is CEO blather a panda to shareholders who are dumb.
0: <laughs> I, I definitely take your point. I could see, mm. you know, uh, because... A lot of folks who play online games like to play multiplayer, uh, like to go into these giant multiplayer online worlds where they're interacting with folks over the Internet. So you could, mm-hmm. I think, make a case for centralized processing just and then streaming out to a thin client. Uh, the question is, well, for one, at least in the United States, 5G rollout still isn't really happening here. And two, when it does, I can see... The uh, mobile carriers making the experience expensive, ag- ag- aggravating and awful. So the, the, those, those are the things I think standing in the way of this actually taking off.
1: Yeah, I, d- I just think this is not credible. Um, you know, that's like saying that uh, Bitcoin is as good as cash. Clearly it's not. <laughs> um, but it could be, right? There is there is some truth to the statement. There is a possibility that this... But when you actually dig at it, you go like, mm, that doesn't make sense. It's, it's you know... We've been having the fat client thin client
0: argument in networking computing for ages. Uh, Like it reminds me of VDI, where on Mm -hmm. paper VDI sounds great, and there are use cases where it makes sense. But has it triumphed over the fat client in the desktop? It certainly has not.
1: No, and consistently, the the fat client at the edge of the network always seems to win or triumph in the end. Look at remote desktops for enterprise. People are doing remote desktops in enterprise, and they are using it, but it's not widespread. So I mean, I
0: if there was ever a case where a remote desktop or VDI was going to have its moment, it was the pandemic.
1: And, yes. Uh, <laughs> it's coming. Here did. we and, are. And, and, and no, don't get me wrong. Some companies certainly did use thin clients. Like they deployed RDP to the house, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of, but not a lot. <laughs> right. Not. Right. It wasn't a mass, you know, mass exodus. You didn't see because the infrastructure needed to run remote desktops is hard, And expensive and expensive to operate. Everything that enterprises hate, they want lazy, easy, you know, and just giving someone a computer to do most of the work is what actually wants. And so, yeah. Right. Mm.
0: All right. Yeah. So I guess both of us are saying feasible, but there are conditions that prevent this from maybe being likely. Mm. All right. A uh, quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Palo Alto Networks. They recently launched the industry's first conference dedicated to SASE, SASE Converge 2021. You can sign up to see an on-demand version of the event at your leisure. You'll hear from industry veterans, including Palo Alto Networks founder and CTO, Nir Zook, Gartner's VP and distinguished analyst, and one of the founding fathers of SASE, Neil McDonald, and the godfather of SDN himself, Martin Casado, who you will know as an early pioneer in the development of OpenFlow and the founder of Nysera before it was acquired by VMware. If you'd like to hear from their, those luminaries, you can. You can also see Palo Alto's new Prisma Access 2.2 capabilities in action, get details on the impact of Sassy technologies, and learn about forthcoming innovations. Go to saseconverge.paloaltonetworks.com to register and then watch at your leisure. It is saseconverge.paloaltonetworks.com. We thank Palo Alto for being a sponsor. Back to the news. Uh, For the past decade or so, the Electronic Frontier Foundation here in the U.S., they're an advocacy group for online freedom. They have offered a browser extension called HTTPS Everywhere to encrypt browser communications. Now that HTTPS is pretty much de facto on the web, the EFF is preparing to deprecate this browser extension.
1: Yeah, the challenge here was back in the day, (laughs) like all of years ago, Um, a few years ago, uh, that if you connected to a a web server on HTTP, it would stay on HTTP. And if you connected on HTTPS, it would stay on HTTPS. And if you didn't actually type HTTPS into the browser, then you would be stuck on the unencrypted site. And so this connection, this extension became a way to make sure that you always got HTTPS first and then fall back to HTTP if the server on the far end and hadn't implemented encrypted connections. Mm -hmm. And what happens now is that we've actually seen that HTTPS is so standardized. If you connect on HTTP, you get diverted to the HTTPS site as, as a widespread thing. And so this, this extension isn't needed, but I think, um, What this signals or the angle that I would take on this, Drew, is that the move to HTTPS has actually been achieved. I remember when we talked about this when it was first announced and we were going like, will it happen? I think it will, but there's lots of reasons why people might not want to do encryption. Can servers handle the load? I see, you know, all that sort of stuff. And so, you know, reflecting on the fact that this is something that you might have reasonably thought wouldn't happen because nothing changes in the internet, and it actually has. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I mean, just thinking about the infrastructure required to make it work, all of the certificate management, all of the key exchanges, all that kind of stuff, it's uh, kind of incredible that collectively we managed to get it done, and Mm -hmm. frankly, in not that long of a time.
1: Yeah, there was a couple of things. I think Lintzen Crypt was a key tool here, because it just, instead of having to go and pay some certificate broker to issue you a a, a key that was done to your domain name, Mm -hmm. those companies all failed to deliver on customers. And so Let's Encrypt just pointed out that why don't you just automate it and do it yourself? And that's what's done. We've seen a whole bunch of tools so that you could either just use Let's Encrypt to create keys for you, or and that's an admission by people in the crypto, in the industry and across the internet to say, they originally wanted the crypto certificates to, I personally identify you and the companies. And it's a recognition that at the end that wasn't practical. We weren't able to get people on board and to go and say, "Yes, I want a crypto certificate. I'm." It's being issued to this company or this person or this designated. In the end, what mattered more was just having encryption in flight rather than the identity function that HTTPS gave us. Uh, I think also the other thing is TLS one point three was a key technology transition. Mm -hmm. Once we got to TLS one point three and perfect forward secrecy and took out a lot of the features in SSL three TLS one and TLS 1.2, we actually got to the point where TLS 1.3 was actually good enough. The technology got to the point where encryption was okay. And then, of course, the other part is servers had enough horsepower to do SSL Mm -hmm. encryption. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I feel like HTTPS took off partly, I mean, obviously through the commitment and effort of privacy advocates and technologists. I really think we also, and folks like Let's Encrypt, that organization has made it easy to get HTTPS in your organization. I also think we have to acknowledge the role that e-commerce played like banks, financial institutions, retailers, they had a significant interest in developing a secure infrastructure that you could do financial transactions securely across the internet. And that served maybe as a counterweight to the interests of other organizations like telcos, broadband providers, Maybe even browser developers who weren't so interested or wanted to be able to sniff what their customers but, are doing on the line.
1: I mean, there was a big backlash. There was a group of telcos who to this day still fingerprint all your data and sell that to data brokers. Right. Um, and SSL encryption certainly made that a lot harder. Oh, sorry, TLS encryption certainly made that a lot harder for them. Uh, of course, they just stepped up efforts. But what it did do is it means they have to spend more and more money to make data useful. And as that gets more complex, and the data becomes less valuable, eventually becomes not cost effective. And what we're actually seeing is efforts to sell that data on is becoming less and less useful. Uh, so for example, iOS 15 blocks a lot of the metadata, which was used to build a profile of you. So without uh-huh. being able to map your network data against your Facebook data, because iOS 15 doesn't let, you, doesn't let Facebook get your personal information, all of a sudden that business is starting to fail or fade out. Uh-huh. Good. Let it die. And keep in mind that personal privacy is business privacy, as we say here a lot. Yeah. Because that same information can be used to fingerprint companies. Vendors who want to sell stuff to you can use that information to uh, identify you and to fingerprint what you're doing, to know what you're doing on the internet, uh, and and so on. And so you should – and there's an asymmetry if you don't have access to a response to that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: In any case, uh, if you're using that uh, browser extension, be prepared for deprecation. It's going to be uh, go into maintenance mode starting January 2022. And after that, it'll be taken out of commission. So if you're using it, we have a link in the show notes where you can get more details. Yep. Uh, moving on, in a previous episode of Network Break, we mentioned that Zoom was making an almost $15 billion bid for a contact center company called Five9. That deal is now on hold or perhaps dead as Five9 shareholders have voted against the acquisition. This is according to a story in Reuters. I think the main problem is that this was an all-stock all transaction and Zoom's share price dropped by 25% since the deal was announced. So investors were like, well, maybe this isn't so great for us after all.
1: <laughs> Actually, it's been a bad week for Zoom because it, uh, this week uh, there was the American government got hold of the fact that Zoom does most of it or a substantial amount of a software development in China. And it's not being done in America. And of course, we know that there's a lot of geopolitics going on between the US and China and people saying if code's developed in China, we don't no longer trust it. Mm -hmm. And Zoom is having a bad time at that level. And then its share price is dropping because it's not getting the growth that it was getting because it was stratospheric there for quite a long period of time. Right. Uh, And now it's not continuing to grow and deliver on the promises that it, it was giving to shareholders. And so shareholders are selling out to lock in the profits that they got. Um, I think the share price drop is a good excuse for Five Nine to get out. But you noticed that Five Nine is—I thought Five Nine was a Chinese company, but you're saying it's not.
0: Uh, based on everything I could find online, I mean, it's headquartered in California. Its board is looks very white and American. Um, so it does have operations and engineering in Russia, which I think raised some flags in a, certain, in a few U.S. government regulatory bodies. But as far mm. as I know, it's a U.S. company.
1: Yeah, well, you can have plenty of Chinese operations that are U.S. companies. Um, of course, this week we've seen the Chinese government continue to crack down uh, as in its own words, as it's starting to say to Chinese companies, you'll act in a certain way and you know you will not mm. make too much profits and you will stop – collecting so much data on people. Um, They believe that is a societal thing that needs to be fixed. And it's also interesting that this also aligns with the US sort of, US political system does tend to be protectionist. It wants to see jobs done locally. It wants things to be done in America, you know, US products, US technology, that sort of stuff. And if there are viable reasons to say, hang on, this company is using, you know, offshored You know, back ends. And if there's a reason, a good reason for them to stick the ore in, although it's very anti capitalist, it's very popular with the US government officials. I mean, I will say
0: politicians pay lip service to the idea of doing things in America, but uh, they behave and implement laws that say otherwise. And private companies will obviously do things that they think is in their shareholders' best interest, which tends to be find a way to build it at the lowest possible price, which usually means not in the United States. So,
1: yeah. So the Zoom share price definitely gives the five nine shareholders a chance to get out, and you know if the price of the you know the the sellout was this and where's now twenty five percent less, and to keep in mind that the reason that Zoom was buying this company, of course, is it's now gone from a you know three hundred million dollar company to a forty billion dollar company. It's got wadges of cash. It's got a high share price. It could just issue some shares and buy almost any company at once. And it's sort of copying what Webex is doing. So Webex is embedding its contact center inside of the Webex port product portfolio. Mm-hmm. You've already got Webex teams, I think it's called where it's which teams. is yeah, which is a a copy of Slack. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're trying to say like this is one product for all of your contact needs. And so when you build a contact center, you're not only handling telephones, but you're also handling social media. You also want to have chat. You want to be chatting to your clients in some unified way. You want to be sending and receiving emails and tracking all of that stuff. And so it's a much more complicated. So this was the natural extension of Zoom and to move them into a, an enterprise market. Um, be interesting to see if they walk away from this deal and then go around and buy something else. And I suspect they have to to justify to shareholders why what they're doing with the cash that they have.
0: Yeah. Zoom did say it's going to release its own video contact center offering in 2022, but will continue to partner with Five9 in the meantime. And you're right, Zoom uh, sort of was the undisputed champion, but is seeing renewed pressure from things like Microsoft Teams, WebEx, uh, and others who are providing uh, video collaboration as part of their business suite.
1: Yep. They're not, they innovated very quickly and then they seem to have stalled, don't they? They don't seem to have moved forward.
0: All right, lots of links in the show notes if you want to dig into it. Uh, in what's becoming a regular feature, we've got more signals about supply chain issues. Uh, Reuters is reporting the electricity shortages in China have affected many factories, including those that supply parts to U.S. companies such as Apple and Tesla. Uh, China's electrical grid, it's powered by coal and a combination of rising coal prices and tougher emission standards have crimped power plants operators' abilities to meet those electricity demands, which has resulted in factories sometimes shutting down for days at a time.
1: Yeah. This is a really interesting thing because the government, it looks to me like one um, one side of the government said, we're not meeting our pollution goals. We need to shut down some power stations. Uh And then (laughs) they did that. And then another part of the government went, what do you mean you're shutting down our factories? (laughs) And they went, oops, (laughs) if you know what I mean. It does Um, seem a little bit like that. Yes. Yeah. It does. It does feel a little bit like that. Um, and so I, I suspect that this is going to continue. The, the, what's actually happening here is the cost of coal and gas and oil has all tripled in the last three months as companies, countries have come out of lockdown. Uh-huh. And if you're running a power plant and now suddenly you're running at a loss, you may actually want to shut down because you can't generate electricity. You've got forward contracts locked in at a certain price. And unless you've hedged them in some sort of money market, Uh, with an insurance policy, you are on the hook for this. Um, So there's going to be very interesting. Anyway, the net outcome is that a large number of factories in China did suffer outages, or they're being uh, forced to work at reduced hours to meet pollution targets. And also there are fuel shortages. It's not as simple as just one thing. And so the supply chain issues are going to get worse, I think is the conclusion.
0: Certainly, in the near term, um, because of you know rising prices for everything, longer uh, lines to get things goods where they need to go, including things like coal uh, and raw materials. So yeah, I think we're in this sort of uh, supply chain. I don't want to say death spiral; that's uh, too yeah. pejorative. But uh, lockdown, I guess, or lock up for for the time being.
1: Yeah, well, I think it, it would be very bad for the Chinese government if they started you know preventing people from working. That's going to be disruptive. So I sus- There were other reports I read saying that the Chinese government has directed power companies to acquire fuel at any cost. And that, of course, has caused market analysts to go into a panic because if the Chinese government is authorizing companies to basically buy fuel at whatever the market price is, then that's going to cause a tremendous spike in pricing and make the matter even worse. So who knows?
0: I also heard a radio story on other internal issues where the power generators because they had to pay more for coal, wanted to raise rates on customers, and the Chinese government said you can't do that because the people <laughs> would get mad. And so <laughs>
1: that, they're yeah. stuck. I mean, there's no indication that this is particularly tech focused, but it doesn't have to be. Like the the whole integrated supply chain. If, if a component that goes into a power supply is made in a factory that's affected by a power supply, then the whole supply chain becomes vulnerable, as we saw with car manufacturers, um, not unable to manufacture for the sake of a, a few silicon chips. Literally right. a handful, like a dozen chips. They can't get them. And entire factories are being shut down and pre- stopped from working. Uh, so, you know, it doesn't take much for the supply chain to be fragile.
0: Yeah, there used to be a saying that when the US sneezes, the global economy catches a cold. But it seems like with all these interdependencies now, a sneeze anywhere means ripples across the entire economy, regardless of the location.
1: Well, in China particularly, I've heard people say, you know, why didn't 3D printing take off? And the answer is because China is our 3D printer. Um <laughs> And it's kind of true. It's kind of true, right? (laughs) Um, uh, It's just easier to go and, you know, order a thousand units from a company in China and they'll ship them to you from Alibaba.com for next to nothing. Um, Why would you want to 3D print them? There's nothing, there's no advantage, except unless you're particularly into doing that. So it'll be interesting to see how it's going because obviously we also saw other problems this week. Um, There was a real estate problem with a, a company with over $300 billion in debt Looking like it's in trouble. and Yeah,
0: Chinese real estate company. Yeah. Ever yeah, a grand.
1: grand or something. Um, we're not a, a, but you know, those whole sorts of things suggest that the supply chain could suffer more shocks. I will say that more people uh, sort of were chatting to me this week and they are now looking at four to six months lead time on Cisco product, just everyday common Cisco. It's a, you know, from Nexus 9000s right the way down to Nexus 2000s is four months minimum. And some people are now being quoted six months on some of that. I suspect that that will get much, much worse. Because as you hear this, you'll probably think to yourself, I'll go and buy some, and that will just create a shock <laughs> of you know, extra demand. More
0: demand, right.
1: It's a cycle. Mm. Kind of My advice cycle. is don't rush out and buy any. Just stop and think about what you can do to make do with what you've got. There
0: you go. All right, that wraps up our news portion. Stay tuned for our conversation on a real-world SD-WAN deployment with a manufacturer who's using Aruba's Edge Connects to link up design and manufacturing locations around the globe. That's starting right now. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we look at a global SD-WAN deployment for manufacturing company IMI, which makes vehicle safety products. Our guest is Tom Braden, VP of Enterprise Technology at IMI, and our sponsor is HPE Aruba. IMI has deployed Aruba Edge Connects to help link data centers in the U.S., a manufacturing plant in China, and other facilities around the world. Tom, welcome to the podcast. What kind of products does IMI make?
2: Yeah, thanks guys. Glad to be here. Global manufacturer of vehicle safety products. So what that means is we make uh, seat belts, restraint systems. Uh, We also make a child car seat. Uh, But really our big focus is restraints for large commercial vehicles like Semi trucks, tractor trailers, uh, ambulances and uh, school buses, uh, vehicles like that. So we've been in business for actually 60 years uh, this uh, just this summer. So we're celebrating our 60th anniversary this year.
0: So things like school bus seat belts, car seats, those kind of products directly impact the safety of children. So I imagine, you know, design specs, product quality, that kind of stuff, is probably critical.
2: Yeah, um, you know, product quality is important to all businesses, of course, but in, in our line of work, it really has a special meaning, I think, because, you know, you, you come into work every day, you really do realize that the products that we're producing are are really saving lives out there. And especially with this topic of seatbelts and school buses, you know, it's kind of a, a new political topic that has really gained steam and momentum over the last several years. And uh and we're kind of at the tip of the spear on that industry. So we really think that that's going to break wide open and uh, we're well positioned for that industry right now. So
0: so I imagine, you know, the WAN comes into play here because if you're doing like design in the U.S. and manufacturing overseas, you're sharing lots of files. You've got lots of applications and uh, information that needs to be sent across the WAN. So what kind of challenges were you looking at with operating this WAN?
2: Yeah, and when you look at uh, the ch- business challenges that we were dealing with uh, back in two thousand seventeen, is actually when we started our SD WAN journey. That's when we started uh, looking at and vetting different products. And at that time, the SD WAN space was kind of a you know an alphabet soup of different providers. You know, they uh, they I wouldn't say that the industry was in its fledgling state at that point, but SD WAN was kind of a new thing in two thousand seventeen. And uh, we were really suffering from a lot of the same challenges that uh, most other manufacturers are suffering from. But we had kind of a, an additional pain point in the sense that you know uptime is very important for every manufacturer, obviously. Uh, if your, your networks are not up and not available 24-7, then you know, it doesn't really matter how awesome your software is. If the users can't get to your ERP system, for example, then it may not as well be there. So the biggest challenge I think that we had was the fact that we do have a huge operation in mainland China in Wuxi China and that really presents a lot of logistical challenges a lot of technical challenges because you know that plant is uh, literally uh, on the other side of the earth so you've got very high latency you've got packet loss uh, and just you know the fact that uh, we really don't have good diplomatic relations with China our two countries mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's just not as easy to call up and get an awesome right. internet connection in China as what you can do here. You know, it's it's all state-run, state-provided internet right. connectivity. So you're kind of kind of at the mercy of the you know whatever you can get in that particular area. And that was really a problem for us because we we have a ton of computer-aided design uh, CAD engineers that are working there. We have almost 20 of them, and we had about 20 of them back in 2017. So That's that's tough because they're manipulating huge CAD drawings, you know, 30, 40 megabytes in size and uh, trying to manipulate those across the wide area network. That's a tall order, you know, regardless of what product you're using. So those are just some of the challenges we were struggling with with China, especially.
1: But that applies everywhere, like moving files over private WAN connections was has sort of turned into this. it became clear that dedicated mpls was going to sell me 10 meg for this price i got guarantees nominally i got some sort of guarantees but i could go and buy 100 meg connections from the internet for half the price of a 10 meg and exactly. what most of us found is that 10 times the bandwidth is better even if it's just unguaranteed
2: exactly yeah and and one of the things that we found because at that time we had a 50 megabit per second mpls circuit very typical a lot yep. of american companies operating in china have got you know MPLS and then we combined that with just a plain old internet connection which was about mm. 15 or 20 megabit per second and we we didn't want to use one as the primary and one as the backup you know we wanted to leverage both connections just to mm. maximize our throughput and give us the best chance of keeping that plant up and running and so uh, silver peak SD-WAN at that time really uh, stood out among the competitors as being the best uh, best offering for that
1: mm-hmm. so did you ever choose the acceleration features? One of the things about CAD files is that historically, when I was doing WAN acceleration as a full-time skill, CAD files are one of the most compressible formats. Is that something that you yeah. used?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, we uh, Prior to our adoption of Silver Peak SD WAN uh, in China and at all of our other global sites, uh, we had these uh, riverbed WAN accelerators. You probably have heard of that. That riverbed was really huge in that WAN optimization space mm-hmm. back in the day. And uh, the, uh, you know, Silver Peak really got its start as a WAN optimization company. And uh, you're right, those large CAD files, they really do lend themselves well to that type of technology. But really, the the two features that really stood out for us or the two technical needs we had is, first of all, packet loss, you know, that was something we were really struggling with. And we didn't realize just how bad the packet loss problem was over that MPLS until we really did some deep analysis of it. And we really were struggling with a lot of packet loss, especially on the MPLS. So this
1: is this good put through throughput issue. Even though the MPLS was, you know, working at the 50 megabits per second they promised, they Mm -hmm. were dropping five or 10 percent of packets. And it was actually the actual good put was probably down around I would guess 25 megs instead of about half. Yeah, Yeah.
2: and the other other problem we had was just the very high latency, you know, when you, uh, the speed of of light is constant, of course, it's kind of like back when uh, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong were landing on the moon, you know, mission control, they couldn't figure out why Neil and Buzz were delaying two seconds you know every time they responded to a question (laughs) well they weren't delaying that's just the speed of light
1: (laughs) one of the interesting things about latency and packet loss is when you combine them latency has its own it's all it's all wrapped up in bandwidth delay product theory but Mm -hmm. latency is one thing so but when you have packet loss the issue is compounded to the square so if you've got a uh, two-second packet latency from China to the US, in this case, and you drop the packets. It then takes two seconds to signal, I've dropped a packet. And then yeah. the other person says, okay, well, I'll resend the packet. And the other person comes back and says, I will send you this this missing data segment and then transmits it. And so the, it actually is a much worse issue on high latency seconds. Packet loss in very high latency circuits is the worst thing you can have. You actually want... Yeah guarantees around that. And this is where these SD-WAN appliances are fantastic is because they can often adapt to the packet loss and work around it in some way.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And that's really, uh, you know, when we were looking at beginning this SD-WAN journey, you know, we went about a, a pretty meticulous process of vetting five different providers at that time. And uh, you know, we scored them. We actually uh, looked at it sort of like an outside consultancy would look at it, and we we evaluated all five products. Now, the, the industry has really coalesced in the years since then. Some of those companies have stopped, you know, uh, offering products in the SD WAN space, and others have uh, been acquired and assimilated into other companies. Uh, but Silver Peak. You know, specifically about this topic we're talking about packet loss and latency, they had two proprietary technologies that really caught our eye, and one of them was uh, called FEC or Forward Error Correction, right. and that was mm-hmm. Silver Peak Aruba's technology to combat packet loss. And you know, it's it's a proprietary technology; they don't release the technical details on how they do it, but. All I knew was it worked beautifully, you know, our packet <laughs> lost, uh, And I, I actually flew out to Silver Peak uh, back in 2018 and attended a week long training course uh, just to get up to speed on how to use all this stuff. You know, I wanted to be the technical leader in our department. Now, I'm not in the weeds as the sea level leader of the department. I, I don't typically configure routers on a daily basis. But at that time, I did configure all of these because I wanted to kind of be the subject matter expert in that and teach it to the yeah. rest of my staff. And uh, so, forward error correction uh, definitely combated that packet loss problem. But then, another feature called Unity Boost uh, really did a, a awesome job of combating this latency problem. And right. Unity Unity Boost is another proprietary technology. When, when the Silver Peak technicians explained it to me, basically what they're doing is they're manipulating the data at the packet level. You know, they're manipulating that SYN act process to basically uh send packets without waiting for an acknowledgement and they do it without corrupting those data packets and once again all i know is it works amazingly and it uh you know the one thing that did work was uh it had a very noticeable difference in the eyes of our users you know they actually thought and this is no joke after we implemented silver peak in china i I still remember this call to this day that the plant manager actually accused me of increasing the bandwidth on the MPLS and the internet connection without telling him about it. <laughs> and I said, no, we, we haven't done anything. We're just actually getting the full efficiency out of those circuits now. So For the I mean, first
1: time. I remember years ago being briefed by Silver Peak on forward error correction, which is based on statistical math, fundamentally around Poisson mm-hmm. predictions, Poisson algorithms, if you're ever interested. Yeah. And the TCP acceleration uh, is proprietary to Silver Peak, but then all of the way accelerators have proprietary TCP acceleration mechanisms that fundamentally look and smell the same, just in case you're ever interested, having been someone who's worked on most WAN accelerators over the last 15 years. I think the interesting part here is that it sounds like you took this on, you're not a networking person, you learned how to make it work, and then it just worked.
2: I would say that's true. And I, I, um, when I did get my start in IT, it it was with Cisco networking. I still uh, maintain my Cisco certifications even today, but that was a type of wide area networking that is so vastly different from what SD WAN uh, really is all about. You know, back in the Cisco days, we were used to creating these site to site, uh, you know, point to point VPN tunnels uh, without any any thought of optimizing uh, traffic or optimizing it for any particular applications that might live in the cloud. And that's really where SD-WAN shines. But yeah, you're right, it uh, it really was a turnkey solution that required mm. a pretty mi- minimal effort, really. And the thing that really caught our eye about Silver Peak is, and this is a real world thing that I think a lot of IT people can relate to, at our plants, we don't really have IT staff at all of those remote manufacturing plants. You know, we, we have some deputized IT people that are good with computers and know a little bit about technology, but it's not like I have a, a CCIE who works at a <laughs> plant, you know, and I can just ship him.
1: But you uh, shouldn't but- have to, right? Networking right. most of networking these days is once it's deployed, you just need a firefighter's. To go yeah. and put out the fires. The problem was is that la in 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 the previous generation of WAN technology, that you actually had to have a firefighter on site to do the firefighting. Right. Whereas exactly. I think with SD WAN, we've got the the cloud management tools, or you know, however you're managing the SD WAN, are using the cloud or the on-prem version.
2: Yeah, we're uh, we're actually, uh, we have our orchestrator uh, on-prem and then uh, of course everything is managed uh, in the cloud. But the thing that Silver Peak really did great was, you know, we ship an appliance out to a remote site. All they have to do is plug, you know, the WAN, the broadband connections into the right ports and we do all the configuration after that. And so in other uh-huh. words, the appliance just needs to obtain internet connectivity one way or another or WAN connectivity. And as mm-hmm. soon as we can see that in the orchestrator administrative console, then we pretty much do all the configuration from there. So pretty as uh, close to zero touch as you can get. And that's that really fit the bill for our, for our user base out there.
1: Probably fit the bill for you as well, to be fair. You went up till midnight every night doing arcane. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that notion of, you know, not having
0: a lot of networking experts at all your locations. Um, but I assume, you know, a lot of branches may have had routers, firewalls, maybe a WAN acceleration or a WAN optimization appliance. Have you been able to reduce sort of that that footprint?
2: Yeah, absolutely. We uh we chose to really do a true rip and replace. So the Silver Peak appliances, they also have uh pretty decent stateful firewall capabilities. So uh, for each of these locations, we literally removed a Cisco ASA firewall, usually an ASA 5520 or something like that. So these were aging firewalls that needed to be replaced anyway, but uh, we actually ripped all of those out. We replaced them with a pair of physical Silver Peak appliances Mm -hmm. uh, in in an HA configuration because we do have two internet connections at every site. And that's another thing that Silver Peak really shines with is the yeah. ability to seamlessly fail over between those two broadband connections without someone having to you know, turn levers. Or, and
1: you or use something. that? Does that happen to you all the time? Oh, Does it happen the time. often enough? All
2: the, all the time. time. I think the best example is probably our Mexico plant. So in Mexico, that's a massive manufacturing plant. We have almost 2000 people working there. I guess it's not quite that many, it's closer to 1200 maybe. Uh, but it's just a sprawling, huge plant out in the desert, you know, next to mm-hmm. Daimler Chrysler and whole lots of other American automotive manufacturers are on that same road out there into the desert in Saltillo, Mexico. And uh, we have Telmex is the primary Internet connection and Telum is our secondary connection. And they're both 100 megabit per second. And, you know, they, they come into two different sides of the building. So we have as much separation and fault tolerance as we possibly can. Mm -hmm. So each silver peak gets its own broadband, broadband connection. And then you connect the two silver peaks together sort of in an HA. Uh, mm, like mm. a crossover cable type of thing. Yeah. And uh, that really just gives you very seamless. And I would say probably at least once a month, we have one of those connections goes down. So at any given time, we have an active, active situation. So it's not like one of them is sitting there being wasted. <laughs> We're actually using both 100 okay. circuits. So, uh, you know, that and, gives us yeah. band, some bandwidth uh, aggregation there, link aggregation, really, I guess, is the proper term. So,
1: and I guess the final topic, because we, we're running out of time, would be that you're also doing local breakout. So you're not running all the data back to head off. So one of the things that you wouldn't have been able to do with your previous generation, with the previous routing technology is route traffic by application instead of IP address.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And that really, when you look at it, that is the key to most SD-WAN products, uh, Silver Peak in particular. Utilizes uh, what's called business intent overlays, which are basically policies that you build to optimize your bandwidth for a particular application. So, yeah, since we are doing local breakout, uh, you know, we're not backhauling all of their traffic back to a data center or something like mm. that. So that allows us; uh, it allows the Silver Peak appliance to seek out the location of, uh, for example, Microsoft Teams. You know, we're very heavy Teams users. Yeah, Uh, And Zoom and other video conferencing. And those are, you know, very heavy bandwidth, uh, video and audio at the same time. And uh, the Silver Peak Appliance knows where Teams lives in the cloud. Uh, It knows which Microsoft data center to route that traffic to. you know, closest to you uh, to reduce the hop count and just to bring that traffic closer to you.
1: And there's no point in routing it to head office just to turn it around and transparently route it back, right? Which is what we did in the old MPLS days, because it could only be one way out, right?
2: Exactly. And we were doing that with with China, but now there's no reason to do that. We still do backhaul some of their traffic uh, back to our main data center, but Yeah, we're breaking that traffic out at the local level now just for for optimization purposes for applications. So
0: you mentioned uh, software as a service applications. Are you doing anything with public cloud like Azure or AWS that's uh, tying in SD-WAN? We are.
2: Um, Yeah. um, When we implemented SD-WAN, we had uh, a co-location data center in uh, Indianapolis, basically in Carmel, actually just north of Indy. Uh, So that's where almost all of our data existed. But in the years since then, we are actually in a project right now. We're about 50% of the way there. We're migrating all of our servers up to Microsoft Azure. So full cloud hosting. You know, we used to be on-prem, if you will, uh, in a co-location data center. And we are now slowly but surely moving all 150 of those virtual servers uh, up to the Microsoft Azure. Take a guess here.
1: You wouldn't have been able to do that without SD-WAN.
2: Oh, absolutely, and we're we're able to still utilize SD WAN for that. Now we can't place a physical appliance in Azure because you know that's not what uh, <laughs> it's all virtual, yeah. and that's the beauty of it. Is Silver Peak actually has uh, fully capable virtual versions of all of their appliances? So mm-hmm. we have an East region uh, is our, our prim, where our primary data is going to in Azure, and then we are replicating that to a west region and each region has a virtual silver peak appliance and we're so we're by utilizing that we're still able to uh take advantage of all those business intent overlays and all those policies we've yeah, created my, so
1: my point was i think and i'll just say it again to see if i get it right you wouldn't be able to use the cloud in your environment if it if you didn't have enough bandwidth and you True. didn't if you had yeah. it stuck to where you were you couldn't have gone to azure
2: that is absolutely true. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think uh, Silver Peak and uh, just SD-WAN in general has been that highway that has allowed us to do that or and to do it efficiently, especially.
1: Yeah, like to consider it without having to buy vast amounts of bandwidth at extortionate prices.
2: Exactly, and it does matter, you know, those, uh, we do spend a lot of money on internet connectivity because that's where, you know, all of your data now is going to the cloud. So your internet connections are everything. So mm-hmm. we're, we're uh, distancing ourselves from those legacy technologies, MPLS and private lines, layer two private lines. So we, we still have the MPLS in China, but uh, our plan, once we are fully Azure migrated, is to convert that to just pure, plain old Internet bandwidth and really go into high speed at that point. So.
0: Okay. All right. Well, that does uh, bring us to the end of this podcast. Thank you, Tom, for joining us. And thanks to Aruba and HPE Company for sponsoring this episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can find many more fine, free technical episodes along with our community blog. That's all at PacketPushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at PacketPushers. Find us on LinkedIn and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.